Uh, let's open our uh, Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 61, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and 10 through 11. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 and 10 through 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then 10 and 11, I will re greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let us pray. Lord, as we read your word, and, and, and we now open up your word, and and consider various things about it. Lord, I pray that I would speak truth. Lord, I pray that those who are present would, would hear truth. And I, I pray that it would have an impact on people, that, that it would affect people. And that can mean different things to different people, Lord, but you know all things. You know where everybody here is at. And so, Lord, I pray that truth would reign and that your gospel would have a healing effect this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it occurred to me, uh, this, this may very well be the last sermon that you hear in 2017. So I hope I leave you in a good place. You know, you want to end the year well, right? Uh, so we've just gone through Advent. Uh, and this Advent is really, if you had to put an overarching theme on the season of Advent, I think we could agree that it would be joy. You know, every Advent season that I've planned always ends on Christmas Eve, and the final song that we sing is Joy to the World. I mean, it's a season uh, that we celebrate that's very joyful. But I think for many people, and including Christians, Joy can actually be a fleeting thing. And, and I think the reason is, if we're honest, our version of joy, uh, more often than not, is synonymous with happiness. And, and happiness is everything happening the way we want it to happen. And when it does happen that way, we're happy. And if it doesn't happen that way, we're not. And we, we can even become anxious and confused and even depressed. Well, the, back, the backdrop for our text in Isaiah this morning is the people of Israel, and eventually Israel and Judah as the nation 
would end up being divided and is in fact divided at the time of our text. As a people, they too seem to struggle to obtain any kind of ongoing joy, that, that, that biblical version of joy that should just be unmovable, unchangeable. They continue to struggle in the same way. From the Exodus generation, roughly 15 B.C., to the generation in our text, roughly 700 B.C., they continually found themselves at odds and under the judgment of their covenant God, primarily because of their perpetual idolatry. You know, one central theme in Scripture from the garden through the end of the book is God is a deliverer. God is the one who always rescues and delivers his people. Well, God would no sooner deliver them from their captors, from their enemies, and put them in a good place that they would quickly forget. They would run off and chase after everything but a right relationship with their deliverer, the living God. At present, you have Israel to the north, conquered by the Assyrians in 722 under King Sargon II. I mentioned that name because I think that's a cool name, Sargon, something like from Star Wars, you know. <clears throat> Over time, many of the Israelites began to flee to Judah because, you know, it's not safe up there, so they're going to flee to the two tribes of the south, to Judah. And then another king in Assyria comes into power, Sennacherib, in 701, and he launches an attack on Judah, and which is who this uh, prophecy is being written to. And they are wondering where God is in yet another season of turmoil and uncertainty. And it, it's in that setting that God calls the prophet Isaiah to speak to his people. But the message, for the most part, is far from what they wanted to hear. For decades, he tells them of God's decrees of even further judgment against them. And ultimately, he tells them that they're going to be completely conquered and exiled by a pagan nation as well. And in fact, that does end up happening 100 years later, 586 B.C. They are conquered and exiled by the pagan nation of Babylon. But there are a few bright spots in the book of Isaiah. And the title of this sermon uh, depicts one of them, the year of the Lord's favor. And it's because as they had been crying out for centuries for a Messiah, the one who would actually come and rescue them, that promised Christ, the anointed one, the king who would sit on the throne of David and restore Israel and Judah to her former greatness. Our text this morning is one of the classic texts and prophecies about the coming of this great king that they have so long awaited for. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, they knew for certain that this was a messianic prophecy. This was a prophecy that their Messiah would come. There was no question about that. They didn't know exactly when or how he would come, but... For the one who would cling to this promise of God by faith, despite whatever delay there would be, that person would experience that perpetual joy that they longed for in the Lord. 
So here's what I, I would like to do this morning. Let's, let's look at this prophecy in three parts. Let's look at the person, let's look at the mission, and then let's conclude with the narrow road. The person, the mission, and the narrow road. First of all, the person. Of course, we believe, I think most people in this room would believe, and if you're here exploring the faith, I, I hope that you will come to believe that the clear answer to that question, who is the person that they were longing for, the person is that of Jesus Christ. Roughly 700 years after Isaiah's prophecy, a child would be born to a virgin, and as instructed, they would name him Jesus, which means God saves, and he would be the one, Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, I mentioned that this is one of the classic prophecies foretelling the coming of the Messiah. In fact, it is so classic, it becomes the text for Jesus' very first sermon. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus had just come out of that desert of temptation. You recall the Holy Spirit sent him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He kind of had to undergo the same situation that Adam was in to get us out of that mess that Adam got us into. Jesus passes his probation. He tells the enemy to flee. He stays steadfast to the word of God, and he comes into his hometown, and here's what we read. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now keep in mind, this is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. This is the first thing that happened. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Back in that day, the preacher would actually sit down and preach from that position. And the eyes of all on the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you are a Jew sitting in that synagogue in roughly 27 AD and you hear this, you are either overjoyed beyond words, which was the case for many, um, or you are outraged by the audacity of this carpenter uh, to paint himself as the Messiah. And if you continue on in Luke uh, chapter 4, these are the two reactions that you see, uh, though the latter uh, outrage kind of carries the day. First of all, in verse 22, it says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then you see them turning the corner a little bit on this, and then somebody says, is not this Joseph's son? Jesus continues to teach. We drop down to verses 28 through 30. When they heard these things, and, you know, I would have loved to have heard that whole sermon, but I think if we follow Jesus' ministry, we can get an idea of pretty much what he was telling them. <clears throat> and it, it says, uh, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him, into the, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. 
I think Jesus was kind of a bad dude. Imagine, you know, he's, he's apprehended by the whole congregation, and he somehow gets out of that and slips through their midst. You know, as a preacher, I thought, like, how, how bad would a sermon have to be? How objectionable would a sermon have to be to get apprehended by his congregation and taken and thrown off a cliff? You know, really, you, you, you just could not make this stuff up. You know, the, one of the accusations about the New Testament is that they changed what was originally written and they made stuff up and they tweaked it to make it all fit together. If that were true, you would not include this. We want you to believe in this Savior that was so mighty that his own people, where he was raised, took him and wanted to throw him off a cliff. So, um, sadly, this is a consistent theme in Jesus' public ministry. Jesus heals, Jesus speaks, some people are moved to the point of trying to seize him to make him their king, right? But others, more often than not, would try to seize him to put him to death. There's something in his message and his mission that is consistently rubbing people the wrong way. So let's continue. We've identified the person Let's look at his mission and try to get to the bottom of why it was met with such contempt. Because on the surface, I think we can agree it seems like a pretty wonderful thing. So the mission, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the favor of the Lord to the Lord's people. It's to bring good news to the poor and to the brokenhearted. And isn't this what Jesus was doing? He was going around healing people, feeding poor people, proclaiming good news to the poor and brokenhearted. It's beautiful. So how does this end up becoming so controversial? How does Jesus end up being abandoned by nearly everyone? And by the way, friends, that includes the poor. The poor actually abandoned Jesus as well. There's something here that people must see or they will just end up missing the entire thing. When we consider the central overarching theme, good news proclaimed to the poor and brokenhearted and liberty to captives, I think there are two reactions that, that can come from this, or at least often do. Immediately, some will say, well, this is speaking right to me, and I, I see this a lot in Detroit and even the kind of the way churches are formed many times in Detroit. This is speaking to me. My life is a wreck. I don't know where to turn. I have no money. I'm literally poor. All my relationships, even with family, have deteriorated to an all-time low. And they can end up seeing the good news of the gospel as Jesus giving them stuff, money, possessions, relationships with others. And as he endows them with these creature comforts, we will no longer be poor or brokenhearted. And if that's you, you are at risk of missing the whole thing this morning. And there are others who hear the messianic message to the poor and brokenhearted who conclude, well, this is good news, but it must not be for me. My, I think that probably represents most of the people here, frankly. My life isn't perfect, but it's pretty good. I don't have much to complain about. I'm certainly not poor. I can buy a $5 cup of coffee anytime I want. My relationships are intact. I, I could not possibly number myself among the poor and brokenhearted. 
So whatever this good news is, it can't be for me. I don't need it. If that's you, you are at risk of missing the whole thing. <clears throat> and this is why nearly everyone ended up turning on Jesus. Jesus' message to the poor was that they needed to become poorer to understand who he was and what he came to do for them. And his message to the rich was that they needed to become poor to understand who he was and what he could do for them. Both people groups are at risk of making the same identical error when it comes to the Messiah. The one who is literally poor can be tempted to believe the things of this world, the creature comforts of this world, will take care of their poverty. And that's completely wrong. All good things. I mean, food, money, provision, good health, these are all good things. But it's not the remedy for a much greater need that the Messiah comes to illuminate to us. And you, you might think, but wait, Jesus did feed the poor, and he did heal the sick, literally. Dear friends, these were signs that were given to establish his power as the true Messiah. And you'll notice that sometimes he says, no signs will be given to this group of people. These were signs to establish that, indeed, God is with us. And it was to establish uh, Jesus addressing a much greater need than the physical need. Now, I'm, I'm on the street pretty regularly in Detroit. My wife, too. We work with various organizations. Um, we're always talking to hurting people, going into their homes, helping them with basic human needs, if nothing else, for the purposes of human dignity, you know, people who don't have mattresses for their children to sleep on. And in the process, I always try to address the spiritual. You know, what is, do you know the Lord? Do you have a relationship with the Lord? Do you have a church family, a Christian community that you are part of? And honestly, they, they tend to tell you whatever they think you want to hear because of, of their need that they have. They want you to help. But the reality is they have difficulty focusing on the spiritual because of the physical. And I get it. it it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of need. If a person finds themselves on the bottom rung of the ladder, they're still striving for safety, food, shelter. The enemy will use that to blind them from seeing their much greater spiritual need. That's how, that's how the enemy will work with the, with the literally poor. Jesus dealt with this repeatedly. You remember in John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. Amazing miracle. People are blown away. They find out the next day he's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They must spend the entire day getting over there. I mean, there must have been a high unemployment rate because I don't know why these people weren't working, but they're all over now on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they get there and they, they find Jesus and, and he says, you guys, you're just... You're, you're missing the whole thing. You came here. You, you did this long journey to come and find me because you wanted more bread. He said, you guys, the bread was only a sign that pointed to greater food. I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven. Eat this bread and you'll live forever. That's Jesus' message. And, and so what do the people do as soon as they realize there's no more bread? Well, we go from 5,000 to 150. They walk away goes back to that thing I just pointed out. When they're 
when they're just struggling to figure out where their next meal's coming from, it's very difficult. The enemy will use that to keep them from seeing a much, much greater uh, spiritual need. <clears throat> and then what happens? Jesus continues to tell them what the truth is, and the 150 that are there say, who can listen to this stuff? And they turn and walk away. Here's how bad it gets. Jesus turns to the 12 and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Think about this. You talk about church growth movement. 5,000 to 150 to 12, and he's wondering if the 12 want to leave. Now, to the wealthy, in like manner, can make the same identical error. They believe that they are not poor, brokenhearted, or imprisoned because they have the worldly creature comforts. And to them, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they are just as focused on the physical as the poor. The only difference is where in the case of the poor, their physical need has blinded them from seeing their greater spiritual need. In the case of the rich, their lack of physical need has blinded them from seeing their greater spiritual need. So what's the answer? What, what needs to happen to avoid these errors, to actually get the message that Jesus brings, this message of eternal life? Well, to answer that, let's transition to that final point, the narrow road. So what is the path to really getting the good news the Messiah, the Messiah comes to bring us, that, that long-awaited Messiah that Isaiah is now talking about to the people? What's the, what's the, what's the path? to really getting this good news. In, in, a, in a word, let me just say, complete spiritual poverty. It's coming to that place of knowing uh, whatever your lot in life, physically rich or poor, you are spiritually bankrupt on account of a fallen nature. You are born in sin. You continue to sin by choice. And the consequences of sin is death, which is eternal separation from the Father. You are spiritually bankrupt. That's the path. Matthew 5, 3, Sermon on the Mount, the first part of it, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You have to come to this place before you get it, for there's is the kingdom of heaven. It's coming to that place of understanding how desperately bankrupt you are in your relationship with the Lord on account of your disposition of sin, save the Lord himself doing something to change it. It's coming to understand that you are utterly helpless and in desperate need of a Savior to do for you that which you could not do for yourself. Make the peace between you and God, the one <clears throat> could reconcile sinful man to holy God. That's who he is. That's who we need. To the literally poor, Jesus says, you're not spiritually poor because you're striving for food that perishes. To the rich, Jesus says, you're not spiritually poor because you're resting in food that perishes. Jesus' words to the church at Laodicea, I think are very reminiscent of our day. Uh, like I said, I think for the most part, this is probably too in, true in PCA churches, actually. I wish it wasn't. But I think for the most part, you know, we, we would have to look at the, the wealthier side of this equation. And by the way, on the world stage over the course of history, if you can buy a $5 cup of coffee, you're wealthy. 
I mean, that, that, that's just a fact. I mean, we, we take these things for granted, but we really are, we really are uh, more on the wealthy side. So here's what Jesus says to the, to the church at Laodicea, which I, it reminds me of us today. He says, because you are well off, you're lukewarm, which basically means you have one foot in the world and the other foot on a banana peel. In Revelation 3, verse 17, he says, and here's why. Here's the whole uh, underlying theme of the whole thing. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Watch this. Not realizing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Think about it. How deceived does somebody have to be to think, I'm rich, and I don't need anything when the reality is you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, I think about, you're thinking about, okay, well, what does it actually look like uh, to come to this place? Think about the prodigal son. Doesn't that, isn't that like a good description of where he likely found himself? He squandered his father's wealth, and he's, he puts together this scheme that he's going to come back and just, just hope that maybe dad will give him a job as a hired servant. He never, never even dreams of coming back and, and getting reestablished as his father's son and, and heir to his father's estate and so forth. And uh, I, think, I think that is a decent picture. Uh, on the other hand, think, think of the parable of the rich man who is celebrating a banner crop. Luke chapter 12, verses uh, 16 through 21, he, he has this banner year, he's got all this, this crop, he doesn't even know what to do with it, he can't even fit it in the barns that he has. So here's what he says. He says, I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. Watch this. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, the things that you've rested in, the things that have kept you from seeing your much greater spiritual need, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, my wife and I, Laura, uh, have the last two years, we've, we've gone through the Bible in a year. Of course, today is our last day. Reading it out loud to each other, which has really been quite an extraordinary exercise because I'm talking about all the names, all the genealogies, everything through the Old Testament. We've done this two years in a row now. And, and we're, you know, today again is the, the end. And as we're going through the Old Testament again this year, um, the historical books, the poets, the prophets, it, it's almost impossible to believe how badly God judged and disciplined his people. That's what the people in Isaiah's day are faced with. Sometimes through the taking of thousands of lives, in a day. It's just, I, you know, we would, we'd be reading and I would stop and, you know, Laura would be reading and I would say, Laura, that's just crazy. I mean, these are God's own people. And, and look at how he's judging them and just, just they, they can do nothing right. You know, every little thing they do wrong, judgment, judgment, judgment. And, you know, I know many refuse to believe in God, the God of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, for this reason, and therefore reject the faith. 
because they would say they could never believe and trust in a God who is so hard on people and causes devastation to come upon his own people the way that he does. And if I'm honest, I have to tell you, I've struggled with it myself. Why would he do this? But this year, I believe God actually spoke to me, that he impressed, I'm not becoming a charismatic, he impressed something upon me that, that has actually given me peace about this. To the point, you know, because, I mean, if we're honest, we're, I think we're kind of embarrassed by the Old Testament. You know, we, we tell people, oh, go, go to the Gospel of John or something like that. You know, I don't want them to get in that Old Testament where God's wrath is being unleashed on people. Uh, but, but again, this year, he, he impressed something on me. And I want to share it with you. The Hebrew people of the Old Testament, the ones that God is continually judging, are the most faithful people on the planet Earth. They are the most faithful people alive. Despite their constant idolatries and the, and the little things that could always be found wrong about them or the great things that could be found wrong, they do not even compare to the idolatries of the nations. And they tried zealously to obey the law of God. In fact, in our text, it's a time of, of, of rather decent obedience that the audience that uh, Isaiah is speaking to. It, it's actually, they're on a little bit of a high note. And here's what came to me. The judgments that we see in the Old Testament are given to us as examples, as signs to show us just how dire our situation really is. That's what they are. We only need to back up two chapters, Isaiah 59, to see the seriousness of sinners trying to be right with a holy God. You know, Isaiah says, behold, the, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. I mean, he can do anything he wants and he can save you like that. Or is his ear dull that it cannot hear? But your iniquities have so separated you, made such a separation between you and your God, your sins have so hidden his face from you that he's not even hearing you. That's how bad it is. He's not even hearing you. And the message for us isn't do better than they did or he won't hear you either or you're toast. I would say that generally speaking, I don't mean to be judgmental, so forgive me, but I would say that we are significantly less faithful than the people of the Old Testament. These are examples to show us the chasm that exists between our fallen nature and God's perfect nature. It's coming to that place, regardless of your lot in life, where you know that apart from Christ's completed work for you personally, apart from God himself acting completely outside of us, we would simply remain wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's how dire things are. And the Old Testament, this time around, has helped me come to grips with the full force of God's legal requirements and judgments against all sin, all complacency, all lukewarmness, all our idolatries, and realizing, as Calvin said, we are all perpetual idol factories. That's the reality. When we get this, and not until we get it, when we get it, 
we get that messianic king that was to come and has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And mainly, we get the cross. We understand that, that, that the good news of God's great love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us, is better than anything we could have ever imagined. But it takes us going down that total road of complete bankruptcy to get there. And realizing in, in our fallen state, we bring nothing to the table. When we get it, we know we are recipients of the good news of salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, solely on the basis of God acting on our behalf. And when that happens, there's two things. Uh, there, there's two things that happen. Uh, response and reality. And I want to finish up by looking at our last two verses. First of all, response. Verse 10. We get it. Who Jesus is. What he came to do where the path, the narrow road that I need to walk to really know what he came to do for me. Listen to this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt my God. We're talking about worship. When you get it, when you understand your estate, when you understand the gift of eternal life, when you understand what this Messiah comes to do for us, it turns our whole life into a life of worship. Worship small w all through life. Worship large w in the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. That's the response. And then reality for, and this is part of the reason why we respond in worship, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. The picture there is that we come with these filthy garments, and, and he takes these garments off and, 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 and actually puts them on himself. And he takes his pure, holy, white garment of perfect righteousness, and he clothes us with that. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. You see that? The beauty. This is way back in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus. And Isaiah is talking about the great exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. He takes our sin upon himself nails it to a cross, takes his perfect holy righteousness, clothes us with that, where we now stand in the presence of Almighty God, completely forgiven and holy and righteous. See, that's good news beyond anything we could ever dream up. Do you get that? And this is one of the problems with the Old Testament people. The best thing they could come up with is the very best thing that you and I would come up with. We'd figure out a way to be more faithful and to be more obedient to win God's favor, right? Amen? I mean, that's what we would come up with. He says, no, that, that would, at the end of the day, is not going to be worth rejoicing over. What's worth rejoicing over is the great exchange. Reality, verse 11, this brings the two together. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts... And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Hallelujah. And dear friends, I mean, we've gone through this season. I mean, this is what Christmas is about. I know we can get all sentimental with this picture we have of gathering around a manger and the baby Jesus and Joseph and Mary and so forth, which, by the way, was not a very amazing picture. I mean, you know, Joseph has to take a nine-month pregnant 
a woman to a, a town because a pagan ruler decreed that he go there. I mean, it's not like the angel said, hey, you might want to leave early because they're going to be short of rooms. I mean, this was, this was not a great scene, right? He didn't become our Savior on account of a sentimental major scene. He became our Savior by hanging on a cross, taking on himself the penalty of our sin and granting us the gift of eternal life by bringing us into the power of his resurrection. Amazing privileges for those rich or poor who get it and knowing we get it because he caused it. Even the faith to believe, the faith to come, um, the ability to understand our spiritual bankruptcy, it's all still a gift from him. He's the one that opens our eyes to that. Dear friends, let me just close with this. We, we know we're going to encounter difficult times, just like they did back in Judah in the day and throughout the history of Israel. Jesus said, you're going to have trouble in this world. But as we reflect on this good news to close out Advent at year's end, let us move beyond the ups and downs of happiness and let us rejoice with great unending joy. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you that the bad news is so bad that it makes the good news so good. I thank you that through your word, from, from Genesis to Revelation, that there's a story unfolding that shows us how far we have to go to come to the end of ourselves and any concept or idea that we are going to somehow make our way to you. I thank you, Lord, that you made it so clear that the Holy One would come and would do this work of redemption for us. So, Lord, as we go into this new year in, in 2018, I pray that you would impress this on us each and every day. I pray that you would help us preach this gospel to ourselves. Lord, I pray for URC, that you would bless them as they're going through a time of transition. Be with them and bless them and help them to continue to be a beacon of light shining on a hill. I pray the same thing for Redeemer in Detroit, that you would bless us as well and bless your church for your sake. For your glory, in Jesus' name.